Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Um, we're in uh, the last message of this mini-series out of Ruth, and I hope you've enjoyed it so far. How many of you have been here the last maybe few weeks? You've heard message on Ruth, about half of you. Um, so I, I'm just going to end this sermon series on Ruth, and I, I want to talk about uh, the faithfulness of God. And it's going to be kind of like my, my landing point. Uh, so if you brought your Bibles, turn to Ruth chapter 4, Ruth chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, I just have three movements. I'm going to take you through three sections of Ruth 4. Ruth 4 is this climactic moment. It's the climax of the story of Ruth. You have this unfolding redemptive drama at work, and we come to Ruth chapter 4. If, if you remember last week in chapter 3, uh, we had an awkward situation. We have actually in Ruth 2, we have this platonic relationship developing between Boaz. Everyone say Boaz. Boaz in the Hebrew means strong man. He's prominent. He's wealthy. He has his G-Wagon, right? He wears Gucci. He has a lot of money. The, the story makes it very clear that he's worthy. Everyone say worthy. He's worthy not because he's wealthy. He's worthy because of how he uses his wealth for the kingdom of God. So here's, here's an important thing to know. It's not what you have or what you don't have that matters. Uh, it's what you do with what God has given you. That matters the most in the kingdom of God. And so chapter 2, we have like this platonic relationship between Boaz and Ruth. And then we come to chapter 3. We talked about a little bit about this last week. The setting is a threshing floor. And uh, Naomi gives the worst advice ever, if you remember. Uh, she looks to her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And um, she's, she's trying to take matters into her own hand. And says, Ruth, I want, you to, I want you to get on your best clothes. And at midnight, how many of you know nothing good happens after midnight? Okay, I, I saw one hand. You're a holy man, the one who raised his hand. So nothing good happens at midnight, but there's this potential um, rendezvous, right? And uh, uh, Naomi says Ruth, to, to Ruth, I want you to go. And uh, when Boaz at the threshing floor, remember the threshing floor is where the farmers go. Uh, that's where they're celebrating their prophets. Uh, they're probably a little bit tipsy. And so Ruth says, or Naomi says to Ruth in this setting, when Boaz has drank a lot. Um, at midnight, I want you to uncover his feet. And then when he wakes up, I want you to tell him, I am your servant. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Worst advice ever. Can I get an amen? So we don't want to follow uh, uh, Naomi's advice. So Boaz wakes up. He's a worthy man. Ruth's a worthy woman. And uh, Boaz says, I will, it's essentially a marriage proposal. Uh, I will do whatever you want me to do. I will go and redeem. This is Boaz speaking to Ruth. I will redeem the land. So we have now the, essentially the following day, uh, the, the, the settings a real estate deal. Everyone say real estate. It's kind of a real estate transaction that's going on. And uh, Ruth chapter 4, we're, we're going to begin in verse 1. Uh, for some of you, this might feel like an anti-climax um, because it's, it's centered, this redemptive story is centered around a real estate deal. But I want you, I want you turn to your neighbor and say normal. Normal is spiritual. Turn to your neighbor and say, normal is spiritual. Uh, and I got a revelation of this, uh, of this thought this week, and I'll explain that here soon. But uh, we have Boaz. Um, his name, is, as I mentioned before, means strong man. Verse 1, uh, goes up to the gate and, and sits down. And behold, the Redeemer, uh, we don't know his name. The Hebrew reads, essentially, Mr. Such and Such, Mr. John Doe. Uh, essentially, we don't know him. He's for perpetuity. He, he will live in anonymity uh, because he did not practice uh, generosity. So behold, the, the Redeemer of Boaz had spoken, came. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And we come to verse 2, and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So Boaz is going to redeem the land of Naomi. Naomi's put up her, her land for sale. This is a fire sale, um, short sale, whatever. She's bankrupt, essentially. And verse 3, then Boaz said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Verse 4, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, everyone say redeem. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, 
tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. So we have an obstacle to this redemption story. Boaz is not the closest relative. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. There's this clause um, in, I think it's Leviticus 25, that if someone loses their land, uh, the closest family member could redeem the land back, buy it back. So Boaz wants to buy back the land, and he wants to get married. Can I get all the singles said amen to that? Okay, we got like two singles here in the house. <laughs> um, so he wants to get married, but there is an obstacle because there's a closer relative that um, by law can buy back the land. So uh, Boaz, he's playing a game. He's, he's, he's a sharp fella. And uh, the redeemer responds to Boaz and says, I will redeem it. Essentially, Boaz is saying, hey, Naomi, this is a fire cell. Uh, you can get her land. Pennies on the dollar, right? Then Boaz said, after the redeemer said, yeah, I'll t- I'll t- that sounds like a good deal to me. Says the day you buy the field, this is Boaz now in response. He kind of comes with this like hidden little clause from the hand of Naomi. You also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Hypothetical situation. Could you imagine the Redeemer going back to his his wife and saying, "Hey, honey, good news, bad news. Uh, we got some land, pennies on the dollar. Bad news, I got a new wife." So obviously he doesn't take the deal. And all the women said, okay, tough crowd. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it, obviously, for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance by this land. And then Mary Ruth and then her descendants would take this land. I lose everything. Take my right, he says, of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming. And exchanging, to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Verse 8. So the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. He drew off his sandal. So this is like the closing deal, right? So they're surveying the land in this ancient setting. And uh, when when there's an exchange of property, uh, they would take a sandal and they would give it to uh, the person, and they would essentially say, you can't come onto this property. This property is mine. They check everything out. They, they're closing this uh, real estate uh, transaction. And uh, verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the land of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to his Klingon sons, right? Kilion and Malon, sickness and dying. It's depressing. Verse 10. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Everyone say, this day. So, are you ready? All right, turn your name and say, I'm ready. Will you give me about an hour and 20 minutes as we close this sermon series? I mean, you give me 30. Give me 30 minutes. Um, this, I had a revelation this week of, uh, about this as I was reading through this story, and I'm, I'm going to get to that. Uh, before I do that, it just, I, I, I kind of want to give you some, just some, some thoughts. Uh, what, what you'll find, and many pastors and scholars have discussed this uh, when it comes to Ruth chapter 4, that, in fact, the whole book of Ruth is really normal. Um, there's nothing, in, it, it's actually stripped of metaphysics. Right? There's no talking fiery bush. There's no crossing of the Red Sea. Like some of the hyper-spiritual, when they read Ruth, they're like, ah, I'm going to go to another book, right? There's no Daniel's apocalyptic exotic beast coming out of the primordial sea. Uh, there's, no, there's no talking donkeys. There's no angelic encounters. It's the spectacular is missing in the story of Ruth. In fact, the whole story is really stinking normal. And I want you to think about this. This is like a crazy thought. I was just thinking about this, but cosmic future. Everyone say cosmic future. So how God wants to redeem the space-time universe and people and bodies and brains and um, lives and bring healing and how God wants to bring his glory uh, to uh, earth and creation and how God wants to bring new heavens and new earth together hangs, and this is, you got to think about this, hangs not on what Boaz does in a church service or it doesn't, the story doesn't work like that. It doesn't work 
um, with any spectacular details. The whole story, Cosmic Future itself, is predicated on a real estate deal. So I want you to think this. Normal is, you, you shouldn't think of normal as boring. You, th- you shouldn't think of what you do every single day as like inferior. Everything we do, business, can I, I'll say it this way. Business is spiritual. What God, what God has called you to do is a very spiritual thing. And I found this out this week. Uh, my wife, as you know, she's, she's been on vacation. I mean, a mission trip, right? She, uh, she's in Israel. And for 12 days, on top of my responsibility, how many of you just love it when your spouse leaves you for like 12 days with the kids, right? So many of you have experienced this. So this is not unique to me, but this is one of the first times that my wife has abandoned me. And so... I, 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 on top of my responsibility, I want to be a good lead pastor. I want to write. I got, I got a lot of projects that I want to get, I want to get accomplished. Um, but I also, I mean, I had to, and this is just, I don't want you to pity me, but uh, I had a revelation because I started to complain, but I had to do a lot of laundry. So I was doing laundry all day long. Um, how many of you, when you clean the house, you have kids? How many of you have kids? So you, you clean the house. It's the most frustrating thing. You clean it, and then like an hour later, it's totally back to normal. It's like, like it's been reversed, everything. So it's just like, it's, sometimes cleaning is an exercise in futility, right? It feels like that. And so uh, I was cleaning, doing the laundry, doing the dishes, braiding my daughter's hair. Sort of. Like I'm totally domesticated, right? I'm living the domestic life, so I'm braiding my, um, my daughter's hair. I, it, at least that's what I called it. Um, she, she went to school with her hair all over the place, but I did my best. I did my best. Um, you know, I'm giving uh, my son medicine. He got sick. I had to take the dog to the vet twice. Um, I'm cleaning um, pea-soiled sheets, and it's just like one thing after the other, scrubbing floors and trying to live the domestic life. And I got to the point where I started to complain to God, God, this is not what you've called me to do. (laughs) And there's nothing wrong with living the domestic, you know, the domestic life. It's extraordinary. My appreciation for my wife just like went to to, uh, another level. But I remember complaining, God, I just... Uh, There are books that you want me to write, and I have this 700-page tome on God and metaphysics that I would love to write, and there's just no way that I'm going to be able to do this um, as I drop the kids off at school and do all the stuff that I'm basically Mr. Mom in it, okay? So in that moment, I had just a, a moment where I was having a complaint with God, and God, as he usually does with me, rebuked me, and he goes, Chris, um... I want you to read through Ruth 4, and I want you to know that everything you do is spiritual. Think about this. Boaz, not a priest, not a prophet, not a a pastor, um, not a poet, not a statesman, not a king, right? Not a philosopher. He's just a, a businessman. He's doing a real estate deal. He's putting contracts together. He has margins, right? He loves accounting. He loves math. Oh, ooh, who would want to do that, right? He loves, I mean, he just loves organizational theory. And God takes this, this real estate deal and uses it to redeem Naomi and Ruth. In fact, the world is waiting um, for King David and eventually Jesus himself who will bring healing to the entire cosmos, and that whole story of redemption is dependent, I believe. It hangs on whether Boaz is gonna get the deal done. So let me just tell you, business is spiritual. Being a mom is spiritual. Coaching is spiritual. Come on, selling cars, it's spiritual. Can I get an amen? I thought we were in a Pentecostal church, right? Like being a personal trainer, it's, it's, it, that's spiritual. We usually think that, okay, God, I got to be something else in order for you um, to work through my life. No. What God has given you, if you're faithful to that, if you're content with who God has made you and with what God has given you, you will learn the secret 
of truly following Jesus. You don't have to be a pastor to be spiritual. You don't have to be Billy Graham. You don't have to be a missionary to be spiritual. God has given you exactly what he wants you to have. He's given you your mind. He's given you your talents. He's given you your strengths. He's given you everything you have right now. The question is, are you going to be faithful to use it, what God has given you, for his glory? In fact, you don't have to be a pastor to pastor. You don't have to be a missionary to be on mission. You don't have to be in the ministry to do ministry. You don't have to bless the world and be called Billy Graham. Your name could be John, Sally, I don't know, I'm trying to think of names, I can't think of them, right? Scotty, Shane, Chris, Susan, it doesn't matter. What you have been given by God is a spiritual thing. You've been given a spiritual responsibility and God wants you to use it for his glory. So Boaz in this real estate deal um, is, is powerful. God uses it to rescue the entire world. Cosmic future is secured through this real estate transaction. My gosh. So the, the problem and the reason why I think this is so important is because we have, we've, the church has kind of gone, gone along with this Epicurean split level worldview. And let me explain that. Um, American politics uh, is based on the assumption that we can separate um, the sacred and secular, right? So we've, radical, we've radically compartmentalized life. So we have sacred space, private space, public space, secular space, right? We, we think of our world uh, in, in terms of hierarchy and compartments, and we try to compartmentalize our life. And American politics is uh, rooted or the American experiment is rooted in this assumption. There's some good things to that, but, but there's a lot of unintended harmful consequences. Uh, for example, the church has kind of gone along for the ride. They've colluded with this split level kind of compartmentalization of reality. And so the church, there are people in the church that believe they can go to church, but they don't have to be on mission. And then you have other people that like, well, I'm gonna be on mission, but I don't have to go to church. You hearing me? Some people are like, well, I could just, I could have my private relationship with God life. I'll come to church on Sundays and then uh, have some, maybe some mini devotions in the morning, but then I'm going to kind of live and do whatever I want to do in my secular life. And we kind of play this. Like some people are like in the, we've, we've compartmentalized grace from spiritual practices. We're like, oh, hey, um, I'm a grace person, like greasy grace. God loves me no matter what. He's going to forgive me, so I'm going to basically do whatever I want. And then in reaction to that, you have people that are focusing on the spiritual practices and reading their word. And if they're not careful, it turns into uh, works and their own strength. And we have this radical separation between grace and spiritual practices, God's space and our space, mission and church, and we see it even with the clergy. The clergy, they're blessed. The lady, they're just kind of doing whatever they want to do. People think that way, and it's a false dichotomy. I want you to be encouraged today, not discouraged. I want you to be filled with hope because some people are like, well, um, I, I haven't seen an angel, right, uh, this last week, or I haven't seen exotic monsters like in my dreams, or God isn't talking to me, and you feel like your life is normal, and you assume that maybe God is not at work in your life, and that is false. Ruth challenges this assumption, this assumption that you have to be in the ministry to do ministry, or you have to like have some metaphysical encounter with a talking bush, you come to me and you tell me that I just had an encounter with a bush that's on fire and it's talking to me, I would say, you need to go get some counseling, right? So we, we, we almost, we just assume that in order for God to do something, we have to live in the spectacular. And that's not true. This whole story is so normal. What you do every single day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, is very spiritual, in fact, um, I, I, I want to be provocative here. I want to push your, your mental horizons. Um, I think that, in part, Jesus 
In his public ministry, practiced compassion. He indicted the powers. Uh, he, his emphasis was on the poor and the disadvantaged. And I think there's a strong connection between Jesus' public ministry and Mary's song that we find in Luke chapter 1. Before Jesus is ever born, Mary sings a song. It's a beautiful song. And it's all about how God will topple the powers. It's all about how God will be compassionate and how God will take care of the disadvantaged and the poor. I think there's a strong connection between what Jesus practice in his ministry and what Mary gave to his, her son, Jesus. In fact, I think God trusted Mary with one big responsibility. I want you to take what I've given in your heart and I want to give it to my son, Jesus. And he's going to take it from there and the father will help him along and flesh out what it means to be the king of the world. The argument that I'm trying to make is, I don't think Jesus would have fully developed who he would have been without Mary. His mom. She had one job, and God said, don't you dare mess this up. One job. She had bunches of kids. She's going to raise her kids, and she's going to make sure that she was going to be a good mom to Jesus. Think about that. Being a mom... Uh, being a dad, which I learned, is spiritual. And we have a responsibility. I like it when people say amen to me every now and then. Like I'm saying this over and over because I want to I make sure you get this in your heart. That what you do, whether it's a banker, if you're in business, if you're in real estate, uh, if you're a dad, a mom, a coach, a singer, whatever it is, you can use that for God's glory. So, uh, this is a normal story, and let's be okay with normal. We don't, we don't need the spectacular in order for God, in hidden ways, to bring his purpose to its end. The second thing that I want you to, to think about today is Ruth and the faithfulness of God. Remember, the story starts with death, starts as like a dystopian novel. It's, it's, uh, it's overwhelming in its abandonment. Think about Naomi. She loses her husband. She loses her two sons. Uh, Ruth loses her husband. She's essentially barren. She's, she's an immigrant. So this whole story, it, it starts with, God, where are you? You read it in chapter one. It, there's death. There's funerals. There's unmitigated famine. And then you see at the very end of the story, and I want to read this in verse, verses 13 through 17. It goes from death and dystopia to doxology and praise. This gives us a picture of how God works in our life. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Verse 14, then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Verse 17, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So this, Ruth, think about it, Ruth. Ruth is an immigrant. There was a deep antipathy between, that existed between the Moabites and the Israelites. In fact, in Deuteronomy uh, 23, the Moabites could not enter the tabernacle um, to worship God. And so we have Ruth, who's essentially taking her life in her own hands uh, as she moves or immigrates to Bethlehem. It's a 50-mile trek from Moab. She's lost her husband. She, I'm, I'm sure she feels like abandoned by God. In a, a lyrical flourish, she tells Naomi, and it's, it's beautiful, I'm gonna go where you go. Uh, uh, your people are gonna be my people. Your God's gonna be my God. And then she kind of ends with this anti-climax, and then we're all gonna die. So she doesn't expect a better future at all. But then we have clues, right? We have clues that we start in verse two. It says, but it so happened. And then we, we have, it just happened that 
Ruth, over the course of this story, goes to the field where Boaz was, the most wealthy man. She happens to glean, and she's seen by um, uh, Boaz and other workers. We come to chapter 3, and even though Naomi gives uh, Ruth, the worst advice ever. God works it all out. And then we come to chapter four and Boaz, because he has money, he does his uh, real estate deal. He redeems Naomi and he marries Ruth. I want you to feel this. Ruth in chapter one is persona non grata. She's unwelcomed. This is political. She's an immigrant. People don't want her in Bethlehem, want her to come. She's Ruth from Moab, right? She has no hope. No future, no economic support. Think about the day that when Boaz married Ruth. What is Ruth feeling? Think about that. I'm sure she's experiencing unmitigated joy. Because in that moment, that wedding moment, all of the debt of Naomi has been removed and all of the wealth of Boaz has been given to her. Think about it, it's surreal. What would you be feeling if seven weeks before, and some of you are in this place where you, you have no hope, you have no future, you don't know what you're going to do, it feels like you're in this dystopian novel, you feel like God has abandoned you, and then seven, eight weeks later over a course of what some people might call serendipity, but we all know it's God's sovereign care and love for your life, you find yourself in a situation where your debt, millions of dollars of debt has been removed and you've been given all this wealth, Come on. It would be surreal. Right? Your, your face would be melting off with just tears. Can imagine the joy. Feel this. And then we have Naomi. Naomi loses her husband, loses her two boys, loses her sons. Mothers feel this. She's, she has no hope. She doesn't know what to do. In fact, uh, she, she tells uh, Ruth, when Ruth says, I'm gonna go with you, she goes, uh, no, I want you to go back to your gods and I want you to go back to Moab. Uh, Naomi is essentially the worst evangelist ever, right? Like, don't go with me, right? I'm going back to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a place of, of blessing. It's, it's where God's people dwell. But uh, I just, you go back to your gods. And, and Ruth, because she had a conversion, encounter with God. She says, no, I'm going to be faithful to you. So they travel to Bethlehem. And once they get to Bethlehem, the local women come out. And what does Naomi do? She gives a public lament. She's like, I, in my 20s, I left here full, but now I'm empty. And I have nothing to offer. In fact, she changes her name from Naomi to Mara, which means pleasant to bitter. She's a self-confessing, bitter old woman. And now in this story, we have the local women announcing a doxology over a course of, this, this story takes about seven, eight, nine weeks, and now we have this doxological moment where the local women announce over Naomi that she has not only been redeemed, but God has given her, not a grandson, the word says a son, and his name is Obed. Think about that, you lost your sons. You lost your husband. That's a death sentence in this ancient world. And now you're sitting there with little Obed on your knees and the local women are saying, God has given you a son and your land has been redeemed. Think of the joy. Think of the praise. Think of the, am I too passionate this morning? Think of the celebration. It's taken place. There's no spectacular visions. There's no burning bushes. There's no Red Sea crossing. There's no creation story where God builds out the cosmos and stretches out the horizons. Nothing spectacular. Only the hidden work of God taking the different pieces of Naomi and Ruth's life and bringing it all together and producing good out of it. This is the faith, this story is the faithfulness of God fleshed out. Let me just say this really quick. Um, there's a, I'm, I'm going totally domestic on you. I should start churning butter here soon. But I came across, it's not original to me, but uh, there's this, uh, we, we call it this, and this a pastor uses this analogy. 
um, there's what ancient Christians would call a loom. Everyone say a loom. If you're a knitter, you probably know what I'm talking about. It's, it's a knitting device. How many knitters do we have here? Wow, more than I realized. Okay, wonderful. Shane Grove is a knitter. Okay. Um, uh, so either a loom is a, a, a knitting device. Uh, maybe you can even imagine a, like an embroidery um, a hoop, you know, those little hoops, and you like knit, you know. This is milking cows. This is knitting, right? I don't know. So you're knitting. I've never knitted, but just kind of go with me. Um, um, ancient Christians would, would describe, use this loom as an analogy or as a way to describe God's sovereign care. When you turn the, the, the knitting device upside down, you've probably experienced this, you look at uh, uh, beneath it, right? Uh, there's only jagged edges. There's really no pattern. It's, it's a little bit confusing. You can't make out, make out what the picture is. That's where we're at. That's how we see our lives, right? Some of you see your life as like just random stuff. You got some suffering here. You got some good times here. You got a little different pieces, bad decision here, good decision here. Um, but you can't make sense of it. But when you turn this knitting device right side up, what do you see? You see this beautiful tapestry. You see this beautiful picture, this beautiful um, vision of whatever it is. That's God's perspective. You see, God sees what you don't see. And this is why it's important that we make sure that we live a life of faithfulness and trust. Can I get an amen? So even though it doesn't, man, things aren't feeling right and you can't make sense of your life and all the different pieces of your life, know that God sees and he's developing and he's taking or weaving together the pieces of your life and he's, he's not building, that's the wrong metaphor, but just go with it. He's weaving together a beautiful tapestry out of the good, out of the suffering, out of the hardship, out of the whole of your life. He's building a beautiful life for you. This is what the faithfulness of God looks like. Which is why we should, we should celebrate. Right? This is, this is a story of redemption, not just romance. Like, and we all like rom-coms, right? We like, we like romance. And this is a beautiful romantic story. I get it. But this, the larger story in the book of Ruth is about redemption. This is a fleshing out of what Jesus would, would do for creation, for cosmos, and for us. Jesus went to the cross and he exhausted the power of evil. I had a conversation with my son last night, Wesley, and we were talking about the death of Jesus on the cross and I was explaining to him how, the, kind of the, the mechanics of it. And uh, he's six and he was a little bit confused, but he looked at me and he goes, Dad, okay, I think I get it. So Jesus died for our sins. So on the cross, he took all of the Satan's superpowers he absorbed it, and he defeated the Satan. And I'm like, that's exactly right, son. He absorbed it. He defeated the powers. He defeated radical evil. He defeated sin, decay, corruption, death. All the forces of anti-creation, anti-God, absorbed it in his body, was buried. And then on the third day, he came back from the dead. Profoundly changing the universe, the space-time continuum, and our lives. So I think because of that, we should do some rejoicing. We were. We were like Ruth, right? We were like Naomi. We were not a part of God's family. We were outside of God's people, and it was God who saved us. It was God who rescued us. When we were far from God, he loved us with a faithful love, and he pursued us. And we see this in the Old Testament. We see in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, Moses has an encounter with God, and God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock, and God shows him, I'm sure you're familiar with this story, shows him his glory. And as God passes by Moses, God announces, I am abundant in hesed and amet in love and faithfulness. The Old Testament is all about how God's people were unfaithful, yet in spite of the unfaithfulness of God, God remained faithful to his people. 
In fact, Lewis Smead, this writer, he said this, and I think if we could get the quote up really quick, I don't know if we got it, do we have it? He said, God is the sort who sticks with what God is stuck with. That to me is a picture of faithfulness. God is stuck with you, not because he's just, ah, I gotta be stuck with these people. That's just a, a demonstration or a description of who God is and how he relates to us. God's never gonna, never gonna fail you. God's never going to abandon you. He's never gonna leave you. He's never gonna forsake you. He's the sort of God who sticks with what God is stuck with. In fact, God is faithful to who God is. God will always remain faithful to his faithful character. And we see this throughout the New Testament. Jesus is the faithful high priest. Can I get an amen to that? Not only is Jesus the faithful high priest in 1 John, he is the one who will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's the one who will truly make us human, will truly make us or conform us into the image of God, reflecting his goodness. We find in 1 Thessalonians, he will establish us. He will rescue us. He will secure us. We find in Revelation that Jesus is the faithful witness. Can I get an amen to that? So God is faithful, and he's looking for faithful people. Our response to this, so God is the one who takes all the different pieces of our life, and he weaves it into this beautiful tapestry. So even though things might look random right now, just rest assured and be confident today that God is working out everything for your good. Know that. Know that, man, you might think your life is normal, but stop it. It's not normal. Everything you do, what God has entrusted you with, your mind, your strengths, your resources, your stuff, your wealth, whatever, right? That has been given to you by God. It is not normal. So stop singing the song, I wish I was taller, I wish I was a baller, right? Stop trying to be somebody that God never meant you or designed you to be. And here's the thing, at the end of your life, at the judgment seat, God will not ask you, hey, 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 were you Billy Graham? He's not going to ask you, oh, hey, were you Mother Teresa? Teresa, Or were you Pastor Ken Wilde? He will ask you, were you the you that I called you to be? And were you faithful to what I gave you? Your kids, your work, your talents, your gifts. You see, the problem, though, with this, with this kind of talk about faithfulness I'm going to call it the contemporary problem of faithfulness, and it's, and it's this desire to be famous. Jesus, he goes, and, and this is what Jesus is looking for throughout the New Testament. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 25, he goes to his servants, and he entrusts his servants with uh, resources and talents. And they come back, and there's an accounting. And uh, Jesus looks to uh, the servant, and he doesn't say, oh, hey, you're, you're famous. Okay, you can enter my kingdom, and I'm going to give you more. He doesn't say that. Jesus is not looking for famous people. He's not looking for rich people. He's not looking for people with stuff. He's not even looking for the poor. He's looking for faithful people. Faithful, faithful, faithfulness is what Jesus is looking for. We find this in the book of Proverbs, this rhetorical flourish where um, in this Proverbs it says, who can find a faithful man? Faithfulness is what God is looking for. Faithfulness. Everyone say faithfulness. Turn to your neighbor, give him a high five, and say, I want to be faithful. Here's the thing. Um, 52, a recent survey, 52% of American teenagers want to be famous. We've democratized uh, social media and being famous, right? And uh, because of social media, we have more opportunities for fame and for money and for riches. And if we're not careful, our desire is co-opted or hijacked by an urge to be famous or to get, make money or to have status or to have um, followers. And we forget that all that God wants us to be is faithful. You let God take care of success. You let God take care of whether you're going to be famous or not. That should even, you should even be thinking about that. Shouldn't even be thinking about success and status and worth and value, what you should be thinking about. Okay, I just want to stink and be faithful to what God has given me. Be content with that. Be content with your GPA. Work hard, but be content with your GPA. Be content with your resources. Whether you have an Escalade or you're on a little moped, just be content with what you have. And if you're faithful, 
with what God has given you. God will multiply that. And he's not just going to multiply it for your own sake. He wants to multiply it because he wants to bless people through you. Can I get any man to that? Faithfulness, 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 faithfulness is what God is looking for. And I want to end here by saying the thing that I think we got to be faithful with, and I found this in Ruth chapter 1. I mentioned a little bit it last week, but Ruth chapter 1, uh, we see this whole story gets kicked off because Ruth and Naomi make a decision to go back to Bethlehem. Like, I don't think this story would have happened if Naomi and Ruth decided to stay in Moab. I think it'd be a little bit crude, this thought, like in, in terms of theology. So if you're a scholar, you're like, I don't know if I like this takeaway. Just, just go with it. Bethlehem is the place of blessing and bread. In fact, Bethlehem is a place where God's people gather. Everyone say gather. So I think there's a case. I'm not trying to stretch anything, but I think there's a case to be made that when Ruth and Naomi made a decision to go to Bethlehem and to be with God's people, that's when healing started. That's when this whole story of redemption was launched because they made a decision that um, more than anything else, being with God's people, belonging, everyone say belong. Belonging and being a part of God's family is more important than anything else. So we do got a problem in our world. I just came up, uh, I just saw some new research. and It says that the average American church member goes to church 1.5 times a month. I can argue for post-structuralism and post-modernism and some other things that have affected um, how we see church. We've deconstructed authority, but many people, they just don't value being a part of God's family. It's like we, we believe that we can, we can follow God uh, in isolation. And yet Jesus makes it very clear that being together is essential for being in the world if we want to follow him. Jesus did not send out his disciples two by, uh, one by one. He sent them out two by two. Jesus had for three years, and I'm sure he was like, oh, my God, i got to get out of this small group. It's killing me. But he had a small group for three years. Right, dealing with, with Peter and James and John and Jesus, man, in his kingdom, being together, being a part of God's family, going to church was a non-negotiable priority. And Ruth and Naomi, and again, this is a little bit crude, but I think they prioritized belonging and being a part of God's family. And because they did that, God set into motion this beautiful story of redemption. In fact, and, and this is no judgment to anybody. I'm not here to judge anybody. I'm here to encourage and, and challenge. But every, and, and this is for American Christians, every, the average, not every, but the average American church goer um, will switch churches every 18 months. Now I think, okay, hear me, hear my heart. I think it's okay if God speaks to you and you, you share maybe this desire to move to another church or maybe to, God's calling you somewhere else. I, I think that's totally fine. And I think God does that. I, I don't think that should be a, a defining characteristic though of the American church. I think we're called to be like Ruth. We're gonna, whether we feel like it or not, we're gonna, we're gonna belong. And even if they're not playing Hillsong or enough hymns, and even though they got these red chairs, and sometimes I'm not quite sure what the pastor's talking about or whatever, you 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 make a decision. Whether you feel like it or not, we don't live by the feels. Can I get an amen? We live by faithfulness. And if we make a decision to go to church and to belong, God sets into motion his, his grace. I can't explain it. We're not called to be alone. We're not called to be isolated. Sociologists call it a non-place. People are living in non-places. They're living in anonymity. They don't have a place to belong. In fact, there's growing research right now. I'm sorry for all the research talk, but there's growing research that some of the school shootings that we're seeing and there's no justification for this. And we obviously, there are things we need to talk about when it comes to the human heart and that relationship with school shootings. Can I get an amen to that? 
It's a complicated issue, so I don't want to oversimplify, but I'm going to oversimplify, okay? There is growing evidence that many of these school shooters are formed by a radical sense of separation. In fact, one school shooter in Ohio, he went to his school in 2016. He shot four people. Thankfully, all four people survived. Uh, in his deposition, he was by detectives and lawyers were asked, why did you do what you did? And he said, my mama hate me, hated me. My dad hated me. My, bro- uh, my girlfriend broke up with me. I didn't feel like I belonged. And that triggered this intense anger. You can't tell me belonging isn't woven into the depths of our being. We are made to belong. The problem is we have all these cultural parodies of belonging. We have uh, uh, nature as church, right? Politics as church, right? If you belong to this party, that's your church. Uh, we have in the fall NFL Sunday ticket in the couch, right? With our, with our homies. We call that church. Like, we can't, we can't get out of church. You're going to go to church somewhere. It might not be in a building like this. It could be nature. It could be a party. It could be something. But we have this insatiable urge to belong, God has designed us to be a part of that. And if we could just make a commitment to prioritize coming to church as much as we can. I know we miss it sometimes. Kids get sick, go on vacation. That's great. Can I get an amen to that? It's fine. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying this because I want to be puritanical, right? We miss. There's no judgment here. But I want to challenge you in this next season. What if we all, 1,500 of us, made a decision to prioritize the kingdom of Jesus and belonging and coming to church every Sunday and getting involved in a small group, even if you have some weird stinking people, just sticking it out, right? Being faithful like Ruth. Man, I, I, I guarantee God will do extraordinary things through you. So what does faithfulness lead to? And I'm going to end and I'm going to have my dad come up. Faithfulness leads to um, a legacy. You can either have a good life and live for your own what end, or you can have a great legacy. I, I want to have a great legacy. Verse 18, we have at the very end of this uh, story, uh, a genealogy. Not my favorite thing. It's totally anticlimactic. How many of you love reading through genealogies? Good. You shouldn't raise your hand on that. How many of you skipped in your daily Bible reading plan? You skipped through the genealogies and you got the check and you felt really good about yourself because you pretended like you read scripture, right? Uh, genealogies for me, are, it's, it's kind of like movie credits, right? When the movie credits come on, I mean, I, I just, I pathologize people who sit and watch the movie credits because I think there's something a little bit off with them. Anyways, let's move on. That's kind of like genealogies. We just kind of move on through it. But I want to read this genealogy. Here we have the denouement of this redemptive story. It's genealogical, and it begins with, and I'm not going to pretend to know all these names. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered um, whatever his name is. Whatever his name fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. A faithful legacy. Ruth made one decision to stick with Naomi and to be with God's people and look at her legacy. So what you do in the present, being faithful as a mom, as a business leader, as an accountant, as a personal trainer, as a coach, it has genealogical shaping power. In fact, uh, I don't put it up on the screen behind me. I'm just going to read it. Jonathan Edwards, uh, considered probably the greatest American mind. Uh, he, he lived in the 18th century, middle 18th century, and he would wake up every morning and he would pray for uh, up to a fifth, uh, up to the fifth generation. Like he's praying for his great, 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 great grandkids. And uh, this is his genealogical record get this, just simply because he lived a faithful life. There were 13 college presidents that came that were descendants of his, 65 college professors, 30 judges, 100 lawyers, 60 doctors, 75 military officers, 100 pastors, 60 authors, three U.S. senators, 80 public servants, and one vice president. That's called a legacy of faithfulness. I'm giving up living a good life for my own sake. 
I want a good legacy. One pastor said, most of what God is gonna do is gonna happen after your death. God has so much more in store for us in just the present if we choose to to be faithful with what God has given us. God will do incredible things. Uh, A contemporary of Jonathan Edwards, um, his name was Max, everyone say Max, Jukes. And he lived, he was was contemporaneous with Jonathan Edwards and uh, these are his descendants. He actually was, dad, can you help me out here? He was a horse thief. He was a criminal. Uh, He was unrepentant. Um, This isn't trying to pathologize him. This is just a a, a case study of what an unfaithful genealogy looks like. In his line, compare this to Jonathan Edwards, he had seven murderers, 60 thieves, 130 uh, convicts, 310 paupers, with over 2,300 years lived in the poorhouses, 400 who were physically wrecked by indulgent living. That powerful. And it's through his descendants that it costs, think about in the 18th century, $1.2 million. It cost the American government $1.2 million. I want to live a faithful life. Can I get an amen? I got it. I got to close here, but let me just say this really quick. A couple years ago, I've shared this story before. I was in a Jesus for Everyone series, and I was thinking about it, didn't really like it. So I was just kind of spending some time with Jesus. And um, the Holy Spirit came to me, and I just kind of felt like, okay, I want to change this series to Jesus for the people. Everyone say Jesus for the people. So we changed it to Jesus for the people, and uh, it became essentially the, our, our mission statement. And I remember thinking to myself, man, that's a really good statement. How many think that's a really good statement? Man, that's good. It captures uh, what I feel like the Holy Spirit's doing in our church, in our community. Kind of thinking, to be honest, man, that was a pretty good thought, Chris. I'm, I'm glad you put that together. And then I remember... Um, probably about a, a year later, my wife and I were transitioning into the lead pastor role here at the church. And uh, about a couple days before we were set in, the Holy Spirit came to me and said, Chris, he rebuked me. He goes, Chris, um, you didn't come up with Jesus for the people. And he reminded me when I was like 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, how mom and dad always talked about the Jesus people movement and how their life was shaped by a, a New York experience, a Hawaii experience, a revival at Boise State. It was at the height of the Jesus People movement. God was doing extraordinary things. It was a seminal moment for my parents. My parents got a vision for the church, all because of Jesus People movement. And I realized, oh my word, I am a product, not of my own decision making, I'm a product of the decisions that my parents made. And then my dad would talk to me about my grandfather, who, who was a, a Nazarene pastor for 40 years. He just lived faithfully. His dad would wake up every morning for a couple hours and just pray for his kids. His, I think his mom, which would be my great-great-great-grandmother, I think I'm kind of there. She was the, uh, a traveling evangelist, and she would go around preaching the gospel, faithful to the entrustment that God gave her. And I realized, oh my word, I'm a product of seven generations of faithfulness. You might not have that genealogical family tree, that record, but you can start today. You can, you can be a Ruth. You've been living in Moab. But you can make a decision to follow Jesus, and God can do incredible things through you. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.